Hello again and welcome to the Footprint 40, a podcast that gets under the skin of the sustainability issues affecting the food service sector. My name's Nick Hughes, Footprint's Associate Editor, and in each episode I'll be joined by my fellow Associate Editor David Burrows to chew over the news and views making the headlines in our industry, in company with a special guest. For our latest podcast, we were delighted to be joined by Mike Berners-Lee, the eminent writer and researcher on sustainability and founder and director of Small World Consulting. Mike, welcome to the Footprint 40. We're delighted to have you with us. To start off, and for those listeners who might not be so familiar with your work, tell us a little about what it is you do within the food sphere. Well, I have about three hats. I'm a I'm an academic at Lancaster University, and part of that involves uh, research into the global food system. Uh, I run a business called Small World Consulting that helps organisations of every kind in every sector, really, to respond to the climate and ecological emergency that we're in. And as part of that, uh, we're working with supermarket chains, farmers, food producers, restaurants, all manner of businesses in the food industry. Uh, and finally, every now and again, I, I write books, and I, including about the, the wider sustainability challenge, including the food challenge and the carbon footprint of everything, including the carbon footprint of foods. Super. Well, carbon footprinting, I mean, it, it's, I guess it's what you might describe in business parlance as a growth area at the moment, and we certainly need some of those in the UK. Lots of businesses in the food service and wider food sector have obviously made net zero commitments in recent years, and off the back of those have started grappling with questions over how on earth are we going to achieve this? Um, and one of the first questions I suppose they need to ask is, what is our starting point and what is our emissions baseline so let's say you've you're meeting a business for the first time how do you answer that question of how they should start going about mapping their emissions and in particular those all important scope three value chain emissions yeah so that's exactly right The, the first thing to say is that it must include uh not only their operational emissions that's a scope one and two that's the direct emissions and the emissions from their electricity production but most importantly their upstream scope three so that's everything in the supply chains um, that they buy and do and in particular in the food industry it's everything in the supply chains of their food and that's where the vast majority of the of the emissions will be and the reality is that those supply chains are very complex and there's a lot of scientific uncertainty about exactly what goes on on fields and in animals and and so on. So um, you can never be accurate about it. We may as well be honest from the start. It's never a question of being accurate. It's about making the best estimate that you can in order to have the most robust management information that you can in order to operate from. But you should always be um, just a little bit cautious about what you are and aren't saying about, about what that your carbon footprint estimate um, means. And, you know, th- that doesn't negate the exercise at all. Every business in this food industry should understand what its total carbon footprint is and should have a plan to manage it downwards in line with what the science is saying should be happening. Yeah, I think that um, accuracy, Mike, seems to 
be really important um, because it kind of opens the door. If, it, if it's not perfectly accurate, it per- opens the door to attacks on the companies that are putting some of these figures out. How, how do you get around that? Is it, is it by being totally transparent in, in the, the data you're using and what the, what, what, what the figures are telling you? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. So we'll do a, you know, a carbon analysis for, let's say, a supermarket chain or a restaurant chain or something. And we will include all sorts of numbers and graphs of where we, our best estimate of where we think the carbon is in everything, including the beef that they're buying and if, if they're buying beef and all the rest of it. And we will always very clearly at the front of the report talk about the level of uncertainty that is involved. Um, and at the back of the report, we will always do a long methodology section and we will usually put in all the emissions factors, secondary emissions factors that we've, that we've used and the sources of where they've come from so that everybody can look at, um, how it is we've gone about those numbers and can make up their own mind about how credible they are. But the reality is that, um, you know, you've almost never got the resource to actually go on to the specific farm that all the meat of a particular type in a supermarket or a restaurant chain is coming from and do the incredibly detailed analysis that will be required um, to work out the carbon footprint of that particular piece of beef. And even if you could, there'd be scientific uncertainty over exactly how much methane that cow had burped up and what had happened to the, the soil that was sequestered in the field that they were in and so on so you know so there's a lot of uncertainty but there's not so much uncertainty that you can't see what the really important messages are so you can still see extremely clearly that the carbon footprint of protein from a cow whether it's meat or or, uh, milk or beef is you know somewhere between 10 and 100 probably nearer 100 times more than getting the same protein from, let's say, pulses or nuts or something. So, you know, it's those kind of big orders of magnitude are crystal clear for everyone to see. And as you get to sort of finer nuanced things like the carbon, the difference in carbon footprint between, um, let's say, you know, um, pork and beef, for example, then you start to get into a situation where you you might not be right every single time with every single number in the report, but you're still right on the law of averages. So it's still worth working from that management information. And, and how about when you start looking at sort of those those meats, for instance, that have a lower carbon footprint, like poultry in particular, which is extremely popular. And then, you know, some of the research I've seen shows that it, you know, the, the the carbon footprint comes closer towards your plant-based meats um is that where you then need to crunch the maybe crunch the numbers in a little bit more detail yes if you can i mean we would always encourage people to crunch the numbers in more detail at the uh, around the hot spots and around the critical decision making uh points so let's say they're making decisions about how much chicken to have against how much lentils instead or something um but at this point i think we need to bring in some other dimensions to sustainability around food beyond carbon because you know with the whole food and land system we've got to do multiple things all at the same time we need to feed everybody not just in the uk but in the world 
we need to start managing our biodiversity that's currently hemorrhaging much better than ever before. And we need to deal with climate. And there are also some social sustainability issues, not least farmers earning a living. And all those things need taking into consideration. So when you come to, for example, looking at chicken versus beef, if you only look at the carbon numbers, then it's pretty clear cut to say that uh, chicken wins. However, when you start looking at some of the uh, some of the other sustainable sustainability criteria, it may not be, be quite so clearly obvious. So, chickens um, are more efficient in carbon terms because um, you can make them grow very quickly by packing them full of antibiotics. You can stop them wasting so much energy. One of the inefficiencies in the animal system is that animals waste energy by doing things like walking around and keeping warm and sometimes burping up methane. And you know, chickens do less of that walking around and keeping warm because you you keep them in a very close space and you keep them very close together so they keep each other warm. That's not very good for welfare, but it is good just if, if you're only thinking about carbon. They grow fast if you pack them full of antibiotics, but that's got all kinds of disease threats for humans associated with it. Um, so, and, you know, and the chickens feed pretty well exclusively most of the time off uh, grain, which is a human digestible food, you know, being given to animals, and that puts pressure on land as well. So although the pure carbon numbers come out nicer for chickens, uh, if you start widening out, you start finding other reasons why chickens, uh, you know, might not be so great. So, you know, I think, I think for all the complexity in the food system, there are some things that are really crystal clear and simple to understand. And one of those is that the science is telling us very clearly indeed that we need to reduce the amount of meat and dairy in our diets by a lot. Mike, the point about imperfect data, I, I think, you know, it, clearly we're not in a position currently to, to have supply chain specific data for every product sold in the uk and further afield the argument i hear i mean particularly from livestock producers let's be honest is that if you can't distinguish between two products let's say beef for example produced in different places and using different production systems then you're not incentivizing the supplier to do things better do you have any sympathy with that argument yeah, up up to a point, I I do. I think um, I think there is a difference in the carbon intensity and some of the other sustainability criteria between uh, beef from different production systems. And in particular, there's a case that says that very often some of the production systems in the UK are a lot better than some of the overseas production systems, especially where there is deforestation more directly into the system. Um, and I think that, you know, that argument is worth making. I think some UK livestock producers overplay that argument a long way. And I think there's quite a lot of wishful thinking and overplaying of uh, what can be done on so-called um, regenerative beef farming, let's say. Uh, and I think actually, although it's possible to do some things which somewhat mitigate the environmental impacts. You can do things that reduce the amount of um, feed that an animal is eating, which reduces the de deforestation burden. You can do things that um, 
reduce the amount that uh, ruminants ruminate, the amount of methane that they, they burp up, and that's all worth playing for. And you can possibly, arguably, do some things that enable the soil that they're in the land that they're eating grass from to sequester a bit of carbon in a very temporary and quite uncertain and you know not very robust sort of way but all of that stuff is modest and the idea that you can suddenly say ah oh, yes so this is a sustainable beef is just overplaying what's possible by a long way i'm afraid picking up your point about chicken and as you suggested often a low carbon chicken is a more intensively produced chicken do you feel that this the sort of nascent move towards putting an eco score on a product rather than just a carbon footprint is an attempt to recognize that there are trade-offs when you when you're dealing with environmental indicators and it's an attempt to sort of navigate those trade-offs and say across a set of indicators we feel that this the evidence says this is better albeit in some areas it might be worse. Do you, do, you, do you see that happening? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, in, uh, in some ways that's a un- very understandable thing to try and do. So, you know, here's the situation. You've got the consumer going into the shop and let's supposing they are trying to understand what the sustainability credentials of the different things they're trying to buy might be. And, of course, it's horribly complex because it's to do with biodiversity and there are social factors and there's climate and there's disease threats and all these things that you need to somehow try and weigh up against each other. And then there's the packaging, the sustainability of the packaging as well. And you know, all this stuff is a very complex picture. And on top of that, just trying to understand what the, what the, you know, trying to quantify the impacts of, of a product are, you know, is hideously uh, difficult. So we've talked about how, you know, the scientific uncertainty around just the carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions associated with the product. But if you're trying to look at the biodiversity, um, dimension to it, you know, how do you put a single number on biodiversity, which is about this kind of myriad number of species that all need to interact with each other? I mean, it's just, it's incredibly difficult to do. But on the other hand, there you are with the consumer in the shop just trying to get some sort of understanding to help them make a practical buying decision. They may be in the, they may be pushing the trolley around a supermarket. They may be about to buy a hundred different items and somehow they've got to make some sort of better than useless decision around all of them. So how can you make that stuff? How can you get enough of that information across to them quickly and easily enough? And so in principle, the idea of some sort of simple rating system in which all these measures are brought together in some way and somebody, some trusted and trustworthy body finds a way of giving it an overall score, whether it's a traffic light system or something a bit more detailed than that. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a nice idea in principle. The question then becomes, who is that trusted source? How do they get to be trusted? How does the public get to understand that they're trustworthy? And all this when there's so much greenwash going on and there's so many companies trying to push the green credentials of everything that they're trying to do. And quite rightly, uh, the discerning customer is is sceptical about a lot of that. So, you know, I'm not saying it's not an exercise that you should that we should be trying to get going. But I do think that there are serious issues of both trust 
and the accessibility of you know how that information is uh, is actually portrayed on the packaging both of those two are are really serious uh and then and then finally there's the, there's the actual practical difficulty of how do you put a single metric around biodiversity how do you how do you weight the trade off between a, something that might be better in carbon terms but worse in biodiversity terms i mean you know and what about general pressure on land type terms i mean all those things together how do you you know how do you uh how do you put them all together into one metric so very difficult exercise but i can see the point in having a go is a danger mike that you know with these eco labels we shift almost too much responsibility to consumers diners in restaurants to make those choices rather than you know the for companies to do the heavy lifting behind the scenes because obviously this data is incredibly powerful for them in changing their supply chains and the products and ingredients they're using well i think the onus is everywhere to some extent i mean i think you know i don't want to put it all on the consumers at all but i do think that as consumers we have all got to try to uh incrementally increase our understanding of the sustainability implications of absolutely everything we buy not just food because uh, we're in this world now where you know we see stuff on the shelf and it's very hard to know what's going on in its supply in its supply chains and yet we have to have some kind of understanding as best we can in order to be able to be responsible with it so there is some onus on consumers um but i think a lot of heavy lifting does need to be done by um by the companies themselves for sure and i think there are some very simple things that they can do to make it uh easier for for the end consumer so you know the single most important thing in terms of uh food and dietary choice is as i've already mentioned to reduce the amount of meat and dairy in our diet and you know and that's something you don't need complex labeling to do that you just need to make sure that your plant-based options uh look and taste absolutely delicious and are healthy and so you know just to name just to name one brand so you know one really good example springs to mind we're working with Jude's ice cream that was a dairy-based ice cream company two or three years ago um we did some work with them uh the the single biggest thing for them to be thinking about was clear cut that they needed to be moving towards a more plant-based uh, menu that's what they're doing at high speed they've got it tasting superb they're finding that their plant-based sales are starting to overtake their dairy-based sales and they're finding it's very good for the business while they're at it it's really working as a business model and they're absolutely taking it taking it on and they've got no need to um inflict any desperately complicated metrics on their customers a, a bit of simple storytelling but you know the what the way it's working for them is that they're absolutely doing the right thing with integrity and they can articulate it in a way which sounds good because it is good it's it's the absolute real mccoy and they've got a great product behind it so they've kind of found a way through the minefield of all the complexity of, of this and they're just helping to bring about you know their part of a more sustainable food system and that's that's the kind of thing that every food brand needs to be working on just circling back on 
the methodology behind eco labels might you said you touched on the need for a trusted body but actually what we've seen to date is lots of different organizations almost in a race to produce the first eco label and get it on as many products as possible all using slightly different methodologies slightly different ways of communicating to the consumer is is that problematic do you think do, do and do we need a single if we're going to do this do we need a single harmonized system um at least in a uk context well I would love to believe in a symbol, a single harmonized system if I trusted the process by which that single harmonized system would be fit for purpose. And the UK doesn't have a brilliant track record on this kind of thing. So, for example, there was um, a publicly avail- available standard on carbon footprint of products called the PASS 2050 that sort of uh, reared its head, I don't know, over 10 years ago now. And it looked all great at face value until you took a proper look at it. And DEFRA put it out to review with the Stockholm Environment Institute, who put it out to review with about 19 internationally respected carbon footprinting experts, who all came back and said, this is not fit for purpose. It's got show-stopping problems. It's just, it's absolutely miles away. And DEFRA went ahead with the past 2050 anyway, and it was just doing this not-fit-for-purpose job of trying to put numbers on, carbon numbers on products in a way that cost thousands of pounds per product and, and just didn't do the job. So, you know, if that's what the single unified approach is going to look like then i'd rather not have it and i'd rather have a mess of labels and at least competing against each other even if it leads to a confused public but if it's possible to have a properly trusted source uh with proper expertise behind it doing a you know bringing together the practicalities of making this a doable exercise with the kind of with the kind of rigor of making sure that the results that are coming out of it are fit for purpose, then that sounds great to me. And one of the things to make it work is you have to make sure that the f- the vested interests of the people that are feeding into this labelling system are, are managed properly. And in the case of the past 2050, that wasn't the case. And there were, for example, there were consultancies that stood to make many, many millions of pounds out of the past 2050 you know, and, and, and they were pushing for a process that, you know, that just, that just wasn't fit for purpose. But if you could get around all of that, get the motivation sorted and get some proper expertise into it, then I could believe in, um, a single labeling system that was simple and good enough most of the time and better than useless for the consumer. Yeah. And I know that's something that was recommended in the net zero strategy review was to have some kind of mandatory eco-label which is managed centrally maybe by... Well, the government didn't... uh, Yeah, not the government. I think it pointed towards IGD maybe. I know the Environment Agency's been doing a wee bit of work on this as well. I don't want to get too cynical here, but there are are vested interests at play in this kind of thing before. And I think it's maybe maybe not far off 20 years ago now that some of the supermarket chains started first talking about putting a carbon number on all their products 
And you could look at that cynically, and I think I did at the time, to say, actually, you know what? This is just a way of advantaging the bigger players because it's a, it's a, it's an administrative burden and it's easier for the bigger players to meet that, <laughs> to meet that, uh, uh, to meet that requirement than it is for the smaller players. And it's a way of just giving the, the, the big supermarkets a bit more of a head start over the smaller guys. And I think, you know, we need to be really careful of that kind of thing. Can I just ask you some, maybe some advice, Mike, on the back of that? Like, until we get such a system, if we get such a system, how should people like Nick and I be scrutinising some of the numbers that are thrown at us almost weekly? It might be, you know, a, a piece of packaging that has a lower footprint than another piece of packaging. Um, it might be a, pro, you know, a, a meat alternative that's 90% lower impact than something else. What are some of the key things that we, maybe we should be on the watch for? You mentioned greenwashing earlier, and we're very keen to pick up on that. So what are some of the things that we might look out for okay so the first thing is 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 the nature of the product basically sustainable so for example if you've got a meat that's making a big claim about being um you know super low carbon or something you know i think it's you know i think it's almost certainly going to be flying in the face of one of the one of the you know probably the most important message that everybody needs to understand is that we need to be having less meat and dairy right and the same goes with like if it's a piece of packaging you know packaging it's a little bit easier to do the carbon numbers on actually um but if it's fundamentally a piece of single use non biodegradable packaging then it's got to be very careful about any sustainability claims it makes anyway so it's to have that kind of wider lens that asks is this, is this basically a sensible proposition in the first place even before you get into the numbers and then in terms of uh the way it's doing the numbers themselves um just what is it claiming and what is it not claiming about that exact number you know and i think one of the things that just doesn't work about putting um a hard carbon number on a on a food product and claiming that it's the definitive number is the science just isn't that certain and you know there's always a question about what have you included and what have you excluded from your analysis you know where are the where are the boundaries you know and uh how much secondary analysis have you used and blah 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 and because it's an emerging field if you you know even companies we come back to two years later uh, from our initial analysis, we're usually in a position where we say, actually, you know what? The methodologies have moved on a bit. So if we were going to, if we were to do the same analysis to, you know, on the same data as two years ago, we'd come up with a different number now. This whole thing's moving on. So it's like, are they overclaiming on all of that? Which, which doesn't mean to say you can never put a number on a product. I think you can. But I think you just need to call it your best estimate. You need to be honest about what it is and what it isn't. So I'm certainly, I'm not averse to a restaurant chain putting carbon numbers on the menu, for example. I think that's fine. But somewhere along the line, they should just say that they're not, they're not absolutely hard and fast numbers. But they can still be useful because you can see that if one number is three times as big as another number, then that's probably it's probably got three times as much carbon in it. And, you know, so it's still, you can use it, in, you know, the customer can use it in their buying decisions. And I think it's sort of, you know, it can be useful in giving the customer a kind of everyday sense of how, how carbon works uh, in their food. And of course, some 
claims for product carbon neutrality will uh, quite possibly lean quite heavily on carbon offsetting. Certainly those shorter term um, targets or, um, uh, you know, for, for products or for companies. Um, it's a bit of a murky old world, isn't it? The carbon offsets world. Um, one that we've looked at a little bit in recent years. What What are your key pieces of advice, Mike, in terms of when someone is making a claim based on the use of offset, offsets, what do they need to be telling us as the consumer and what should that what are the best practice guidelines i guess for their use of offsets okay well you're absolutely right the minute we start getting into carbon neutrality or net zero we are opening up a very murky world um so the first thing to say about offsets is that they're not really real there is nothing you can do to undo um, any carbon emissions that you've had in your in your supply chain or in your in your operations um, so the closest you can get is uh, carbon removals is a is a high quality nature based carbon removal such as um, some mixed planting of woodland uh, in a biodiverse way um, you know on a piece of land or maybe restoring um, some peat bog that's been badly treated or something like that. And if it's done really carefully, then you can make the case that you're removing carbon from the air. Um, but can you claim that you're removing carbon additionally to what you, what needed to happen anyway? No, you can't make that claim because if you look at where the world's at at the moment, not only do we need to be cutting the world's carbon footprint like crazy, on a steep trajectory in line with 1.5 degrees or as, you know, just as fast as we possibly can. But that's not enough. We also need to be already implementing all those high quality and biodiversity sensitive nature based solutions that we can. So we already need to plant all the trees that we can in the world and restore all the peat bogs. So you can't claim all right, you know, I've got a needless carbon footprint on this can of Coca-Cola or on this or on this beef burger or whatever, but that's okay because I've offset it with those trees. You just can't do those analysis. The world needs to plant the trees and not have the beef. Um, so that's why offsetting is just a, it's just a bogus concept. So when people talk about net zero, I, you know, I think it was a useful language up to a point. But if you really look at it hard, uh, I don't think it really stacks up. I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to give every company that's going, that's claiming net zero a hard time over it. But I think what they have to mean by it is number one, we are cutting our carbon in the first place in line with what the science says needs to be happening. And of course, that's different for every industry. And within food, it's different within different food product types so but what it's saying for example within um you know animal-based proteins is it's it's saying cutting that carbon on a steep trajectory that's consistent with reducing the amount of meat and dairy in that protein source in the first place at a pretty rapid level so all that stuff's got to be going on before you even start talking about removing any carbon um 
And when you're doing that, you know, as fast as you can in line with what the science says needs to be happening, and the science is really pretty well saying just as fast as we can, then if you've got some spare cash left over to, then you're feeling like making a donation to the low carbon world, which is what carbon removals are, then great, go and find some really high quality nature-based solutions that are very uh, careful about the wider biodiversity implications and the social impacts um, of the scheme and make sure they're absolutely verifiable uh, and make sure they're sufficiently permanent as well. And then sure, um, go ahead and do that. And if you want to have a storyline that says, okay, our carbon footprint is, you know, the amount of carbon that we're removing is the same as our or more than our remaining carbon footprint and you want to call it net zero, then okay, if you've done it really well, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not averse to it. I don't think it's a really robust, um, piece of logic at the end of the day, but, you know, it's one way of, uh, of a company taking some, if it's done well, it's one way of a company taking strong action and finding a language with which to talk to the customer about it. So I'm not necessarily averse to it. Is BrewDog potentially quite a good example of that approach, yeah. Mike? I know you work with BrewDog and they've obviously, they declared themselves carbon negative. I think in 2020, they're doing the peatland restoration. They're, they're planting the, I think they call it the lost forest up in Scotland. But at the same time, they are clearly doing a lot within their own operations around electric vehicles, switching to electric vehicles packaging trialing reuse models um do you think that's in that context it's legitimate to claim that carbon negativity or neutrality if you're doing as much as you can to reduce your direct and indirect emissions yeah i think in the case of brewdog i think that claim is as strong as it gets really so you know we work pretty closely with them we've mapped out all their carbon including of course their supply chains with you know a pretty great deal of care and we've um well between us we've set targets on on cutting that carbon uh and actions to go with it and it's been uh really ambitious it's not been about oh what are we going to do by 2030 or something it's but it's really you know the prior the the primary focus has been on what can we do in the next two or three years right now you know can we get 20 or 30 percent out of our carbon over the course of two or three years so you know that's the, and that's the sort of i'm much more interested in strong short-term actions most of the time than sort of lofty things that you can loft, lofty distant goals that you can put off doing anything about for a few years so that's really good and as you say they're doing some great action on you know everything from anaerobic digestion to you know more efficient this that and everything you can think of and their own turbines and so on so all of that is good as well as the sourcing of their ingredients as well as the transport um as well as as well as incrementally changing the diets on the uh in the brew dog on the menus in the brew dog bars and so on as well as communicating on the beer cans about how how there's a climate emergency going on you know all of that stuff for me is a strong coherent uh, approach to the climate emergency and then uh in terms of what they're doing to take carbon back out of the air we came up with between us we came up with a list of about 65 certified 
carbon removal projects, we immediately ruled out anything that was any kind of so-called offset that wasn't a removal. And out of that 65, we narrowed it down to just five that we were actually happy to recommend to BrewDog by the time we'd looked at the wider biodiversity credentials and the social credentials and the extent to which we trusted that the project was actually happening as described without double counting and so on. So there were just five of them and BrewDog went with those five and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's really good. We were, we were happy with this, that stringent screening. And then on top of that, they've bought this land up in Scotland, the Lost Forest, which they're planting trees on and, and, uh, and restoring peat bogs and so on. And actually in carbon terms in the short term, that's not going to deliver them all that much because it takes years for a, a sapling that you plant to grow to the size at which it's actually sequestering any decent amount of carbon. But they're doing all the right thing. And I was up there with Scottish woodland and seeing the diggers in, in action, restoring the peat bogs and so on. And the care with which they are, really really trying to do it properly is great it's fantastic and they're going to turn it into a recreational space and all the rest of it so you know i so i think brewdog are pretty well exemplary um on you know so far on what they need to do and in fact i'm going up to see them tomorrow and we need to crank it up another gear because having having done the easy wins of the first two or three years we've now got to look at well okay what's it what's it properly going to look like from here on in, but it's a properly serious and integrated approach to carbon, to carbon in the business. Yeah, and if Brewdog Mike uh, are one of those that are pioneering some of this, how about some of the 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 laggards? I mean, where well, where are your main concerns um, in terms of the food and drink sector? Okay, so who'd be the laggards? So the first thing to say is. Anybody who's calling themselves carbon neutral or net zero or something without including the whole supply chains of all the food, that's a complete non-starter. Anybody who has got a lot of beef, uh, a lot of meat in their ingredients and isn't, uh, meat and dairy in their ingredients and isn't working hard to reduce that proportion by a lot with a game plan to get it down, you know, really to a small fraction of what it is at the moment, they are not doing, they are not honouring the science in terms of their carbon footprint in the first place. So they shouldn't be in there. Uh, you know, anybody who's not doing, you know, everything they can holistically across every element of their carbon footprint shouldn't be calling themselves net zero. And then finally, there's a question about the quality with which they're doing any carbon removals. And, you know, there is a hard reality, which is the cheap so-called offsets look too good to be true because they are too good to be true. And, you know, either they're not real removals or they're not really happening or there's some kind of double counting going on or there's some hideous compromise with biodiversity, such as a, mon a monoculture being planted up, you know, somewhere where it should be diverse savanna or something like that. So, you know, it unfortunately, it takes time, care, attention and money to do the right thing with a piece of land. Terrific. Well, 40 minutes have flown by and we've, we've reached the end of our time. M Mike, thank you so much. It's been a really insightful session, plenty for our listeners to take away with them. 
it's a complex subject, right? And um, a lot of businesses are still coming to terms with the terminology and definitions and really trying to understand how they approach carbon management and footprinting and, and net zero. So thank you for bringing some clarity to these complexities and uh, woe betide the greenwashers, I think, is the <laughs> key message to take away. But thank you. That's a pleasure. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And you're, you're right, there's a lot of complexity in it. But what I would say is that for all the complexity, there are still some very simple, clear messages for anyone in the food industry. And also, just to, if I can quickly squeeze in a note of optimism, I think that the appetite and the conditions for change are really you know really seem to be quite strong at the moment so i think you know huge sections of the uk public are ready to change their diets there are loads and loads of land farmers and other land managers who are just really want to do the right thing and all they need is the right subsidy basis to allow them to earn a living while they're doing it and i think you know and i'm i'm working with food manufacturers and restaurant chains that really get it, that there's a commercial opportunity in helping to be at the forefront of this change as well. So I think, you know, change is coming for the food industry in the UK. A huge thank you to our guest, Mike Berners-Lee, and thank you to Coca-Cola Euro Pacific Partners for your support in making these podcasts possible. This podcast was produced by the Footprint Media Group. To find out more, visit foodservicefootprint.com. Thanks for listening.